This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reasons, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Elizabeth Anderson. Liz is Arthur F. Thurneau Professor and John Dewey Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. She's the author of several influential academic articles, including the groundbreaking 1999 essay, What is the Point of Equality? Her most recent book is titled The Imperative of Integration, and it was published in 2001 with Princeton University Press. Her new book will be released in May of this year, and its title is Private Government. Hello, Liz. Hi. How are you doing today? Very good. Great. So um, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, as you know, Liz, um, the most recent presidential election and um, the campaign leading up to it, and maybe even the period leading up to the campaign, um, was surprising in a lot of ways. Um, but I think it would be hard to deny that our politics uh, have become increasingly divisive. And much of the divisiveness, it seems to me at least, cuts across or cuts along um, racial, ethnic, and religious lines. Now, in your work uh, over a few decades, you've promoted a conception of democracy and justice that uh, emphasized the need for society to foster relations of equality among citizens. And you've argued that the, rec that, that the requisite kind of equality calls for um, modes of social integration um, of actual interactions between uh, citizens. Um, now, given these longstanding commitments of yours, um, what do you make of the current state of democracy in the United States? I think we are in a very dangerous moment because uh, we have a White House occupied by someone who rejects democratic norms and in particular norms of discourse and inclusion. So we are at a moment where I think fundamental institutions of democracy need to be defended and re-articulated so that people can understand uh, why this is such a dangerous moment. Well, good. What in what in particular, um, which norms do you think are most uh, imperiled uh, 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 at this juncture? Okay, so let's just step back and think about what democracy is. Great. It's a mode of 
government in which people who are acknowledged to have different conceptions of the good, different ideas about the direction public policy ought to go, contending interests, worldviews, religions, and so forth, nevertheless have to come to terms with one another and find out ways to cooperate on terms of equality. And that means that government has to run by discussion and compromise on a basis of civility all around. People have to recognize that every citizen is entitled to be included, to participate, has a legitimate voice, and people have to be willing to engage in give and take. And what we're seeing now is a repudiation of that whole idea of democracy where we run policy by means of discussion. We try to work things out, recognizing the legitimacy of disagreement and diversity. And instead, we are right now in what one might call a populist moment. So Donald Trump ran an explicitly populist campaign. And populism, you might think, well, what could be more democratic than that? He wants to give power back to the people. But populism actually has a very specific meaning, and we see populism arising also in many countries in Europe. Populist parties run Hungary and Poland. Uh, they are poised perhaps to take over in France. We have populism in Italy. Brexit, I think, was a populist moment. All of these forms of populism identify the people who are going to take their country back as only a subset of all the citizens of the nation. They are a subset that considers itself aggrieved and oppressed by elites, but they're always constrained in their identity. So Trump's version of populism is speaking on behalf of white Christians, and he explicitly made his campaign a campaign against what he calls political correctness, that is a set of social norms that uh, demand civility in discourse towards a variety of minorities in the United States, uh, people whose ancestry doesn't come from Europe, so people of color, Muslims, right, non-Christians, uh, those are the two main ones. Immigrants who have just come to our shores recently who weren't born here, but who are hoping to make their lives here. Mm-hmm. All of these people now, uh, Trump explicitly treated as enemies of the people, not as part of the people or aspirants who are contributing to America and should be given a path to citizenship and inclusion. Right. And I suppose that even the um, the central slogan, Make America Great Again, has, um, as you say, sort of populism has that sort of smiley face version, what could be more democratic, um, but then it also has this exclusion sort of just below the surface. And it seems as though that, that slogan is another example of this, right, that there was some past where America was great. Exactly. And I think he's harking back, I think, to the 1950s when 
white Christians ran everything (laughs) and other religious groups and racial groups uh, had their place in the back of the bus. Right. So, right. So the, um, the connection with your academic work though is, is, is worth uh, punctuating here a little bit, I think, or a little bit further, I think. So, um, just to pick up on your conception of what democracy is all about, it, it's it's it, it's a commitment to a certain kind of civility and inclusion. But um, I take it that you also hold that on the ground, right? Actually, in our day-to-day interactions, um, there has to be um, a, a rich variety of opportunity for citizens to um, actually, in a face-to-face way, confront people who aren't like them economically, religiously, ethnically, uh, uh, by along lines of gender and such. Is that true? Yes, that is exactly right. Uh, and that's really what's been missing uh, in America, partly because we are a highly segregated country. And so people from different walks of life have very few occasions to engage in face-to-face civil communication about the issues of the day. Such things are much more common in the big cities, uh, very much less common in rural and ex-urban areas from which Trump is drawing his support. So he's drawing his support, I think, from people who are afraid of immigrants, afraid of people of color, afraid of Muslims, But these are also people who, by and large, don't have contact with uh, the people who are designated enemies or threats. Whereas if you go, for instance, to southeast Michigan, where I live, I have lots and lots of Muslim students, foreign students in my classroom. They contribute immeasurably to the richness of discourse on campus. They're 100% plus. And here in Southeast Michigan, there are plenty of women in hijabs, some of them even covered head to toe, who go out to the lakes and go swimming with everyone else. And nobody has a problem with it. (laughs) They're just like anybody else. They're having fun. They're enjoying a sunny day. They're out with their families, with their kids. There's nothing remotely threatening about them. They have different modes of dress different religion, different traditions, but to conceive of them as some kind of threat trying to take over America and, and impose Sharia law, nothing could be more preposterous. It's, 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 it's an absurdity. But suppose you're out in some remote area, you don't see what's going on, you don't have any contact. Instead, you're tuning into Fox News or going on Breitbart.com And they are sending you a lot of fake news about threats or grossly exaggerating the probability of a terrorist attack on U.S. soil, even though there's been about a quarter of a million murders in the United States since 9-11. And of those, less than 200 have been from Muslim terrorists And there's been roughly the same number of murders from 
white nationalist terrorists, KKK, neo-Nazi type people who aren't even in the press. Uh, so yes, we do have crazy people running around, but they come from all groups. <laughs> Muslims aren't any more of a threat than than any other group. Right, and so I, I, I it's it's an interesting, um, I guess, a sociological story that I myself don't know how to tell about how our politics has sort of moved in this direction. But it does seem that um, these days, uh, when the president or um, uh, somebody uh, from um, uh, a politician, maybe more generally, um, is uh, describing a policy or criticizing a standing policy. There's always, um, sometimes again, overtly, but uh, often sort of beneath the surface, a depiction of um, the kind of people who benefit from the policy that's being opposed or a depiction of um, the kind of people who are threatening uh, and dangerous who will be um, encouraged or emboldened by uh, the kind of policy that's being opposed. Um, that there is this always this um, signaling uh, by way of a description of the, the 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 unfamiliar others who need to be protected against or kept in their place or kept out, uh, as the case may be. Um, does that seem right to you? Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we have a politics in which. The Republican Party and Trump think that they can gain popularity and popular support by whipping up a lot of fears and then posing as the protectors of the people against threatening others. So, yeah, you build a wall along the Mexican border, keep out immigrants, you ban visitors from Muslim countries. Uh, right. It, that that whole discourse makes no sense in, unless you've already whipped up an enormous amount of fear that, in fact, isn't borne out by any responsible empirical study. But right. that's the point at which we are right now, is that we don't have a fact based discourse anymore. Uh, Trump can lie with impunity the press can go out and correct those lies and it has no impact at all. His supporters, Trump, by the way, has historically high support among Republicans. He has, he's more popular among Republicans than Reagan was in his first month. Wow. I, I wasn't aware of that. He's got about 90% approval. So nothing's going to change his view because he thinks the real people, the real Americans are Republicans. Nobody else matters. So if he has 90 percent support among them, <laughs> he's a winner. <laughs> Nobody else's opinion counts, least of all the opinion of the press. Right. So let me ask about an implication um, uh, about the um, the fastness and looseness with with facts and um uh, maybe the the dissolution of the very concept of facts. Do you think that that um, uh, tendency in our discourse 
helps explain some of the ways in which, um, at least from the perspective of um, political philosophers like you and me, some of the um, alliances uh, in contemporary politics as practiced seem um, to cut across standard ideological, what we thought were standard ideological um, uh, uh, distinctions. I'll just give one example. Um, the border wall uh, across the southern border of uh, the United States um, seems to have a fair degree or a large degree of support uh, among um, Trump supporters, some of whom I would have thought as traditional conservatives or even as maybe libertarian-leaning conservatives would be very suspicious of merely the acquisition of the land. (laughs) (laughs) And I I haven't heard – I haven't heard that, to be honest. I mean maybe I just haven't been listening uh, to to the right sources. I haven't really heard that concern voiced that the border wall, whatever its merits may be – uh, might be objectionable simply from the point of view of um, the government acquiring that much U.S. property uh, that I suspect um, is largely privately owned. Um, yeah, a lot of it is. And a lot of the landowners uh, will definitely put up a fight in the courts over the acquisition of their land. A good number of these landowners actually have ranches that cross the border and they don't want to have a wall blocking their access to property they own in Mexico. Right. So, so good. So this is, this is a puzzling feature of this. I would have thought that, um, that, that aspect of the operation, not merely the price tag, which I have heard talk about, but just the acquisition of the property seems to cut against (laughs) what I would have. Trump is very interesting because, remember, he said as a real estate guy, he had no problems with eminent domain, the state's use of eminent domain to acquire large lots of property. All developers rely on that in order to get uh, uh, an expanse of land for very large development. So from Trump's point of view, he's using the state power appropriately. Yeah, I th- that part I, I think I understand, but the, the level of support for this from people I would think would be really into property rights um, <laughs> is is kind of puzzling. I mean, it's kind of <laughs> puzzling to me, and I'm wondering if there isn't just a, um, this wonder if this isn't just a broader implication that now that there is something post fact or um, as post truth about our political landscape, if you know. Our, our 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 conceptual tools for charting, you know, how political positions work and what different kinds of political philosophical views, um, how they manifest themselves in sort of policy um, uh, yeah. uh, positions, so, whether that doesn't right. just break down at this point. So let's consider how Trump has overturned the traditional explicit ideology of the Republican Party. Great. So until now, officially, the Republican Party was a free market, private property style party. So it had a, 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 a libertarian streak to it. And, and a lot of that was about free trade. It was about, you know, no taxes, a minimal state. Uh, and what we see is Trump has completely repudiated free trade. He doesn't believe in it. 
He thinks America is getting ripped off by trade deals. Uh, he also opposes free movement of labor, whereas elite business class in the United States is very much in favor of free movement of labor because their business models depend on foreign workers, mm -hmm. uh, some of them coming to the United States. So essentially, Trump has cast off the libertarian strain in the Republican Party and replaced it with a kind of white nationalism. And what he's proven is that the base of the Republican Party never really cared about the global cosmopolitan corporate libertarian ideology that was previously dominant in the Republican Party. That's essentially what he showed through his you know, triumphant romp through the primaries, is that most Republicans don't sign on to that ideology. Even, I mean, they don't sign on to it, even though it's still part of their um, their rhetoric, or at least until maybe that part's changing. But yeah, it so was part of what they said, yeah. right? Another way you can think about it is that there's always been a tension within the Republican Party between free trade, libertarianism, and just being pro-business. So you could be pro-business in a lot of ways. You could be pro-business by putting state power behind certain corporations or sectors of the economy. Uh, and that's essentially what Trump has decided to do. He's pro-business, but he's not libertarian. I see. Um, well, so um, one wonders then um, if uh, the standard uh, if the if if our ways of sort of um, conceptualizing the political landscape are have become um, unstable in certain ways such that now it's it's not clear um, at least uh, to many of us it's not clear what uh, where the political allegiances are um, maybe the only political allegiance always has only been to just get elected <laughs> <laughs> to, to to hold power, and I guess one wonders. Um, and uh, your 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 work in the the uh, imperative of integration book um, uh, has some uh, interesting data on this. I wonder if this um, populist uh, turn, the sort of realigning of standard conservative, or maybe the overturning of standard conservative. Um, philosophical commitments. Um, do you think that that's a response to um, shifting demographic trends in the country that um, yes, force a conservative party to, 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 to maybe realign in ways so that it can um, energize um, uh, a certain demographic that is uh, that used to being a privileged demographic, it's losing its privilege and um, is no longer um, a majority? Yes. So let's let's keep in mind that I believe whites still are a majority in this country, but demographics look maybe in 10 or 20 years, the census thinks they will be only a plurality. Right. And so I do think that Trump is... Uh, taking advantage of the sense of uh, whites who care about white identity 
as being in decline and seeing that as a kind of existential threat. Yes, absolutely. I think that's true. And of course, that is almost inevitable. I wouldn't say that populism is forced on the Republican Party. These are always choices. But remember, ever since the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed, there has been a steady realignment. Where are the white racists going to go? They're originally almost entirely in the Democratic Party. But starting around 1948, when Truman racially integrated the armed forces, and at its peak in the 60s, uh, with all the civil rights bills that got passed, uh, white racists steadily left the Democratic Party and entered the Republican Party, where they saw more of a home, because the Republican Party was more skeptical of and resistant to this anti-discrimination law, uh, integration of the schools, and so forth. And now we see a complete realignment of the parties. Now they're almost perfectly sorted. Right. Uh, so that the overwhelming majority of people of color are in the Democratic Party, and the overwhelming majority of white racists are in the Republican Party. And so now the Republican Party, in a way, is reaping what it's sown, and in the sense that at the presidential level to win elections, now Trump has forged a path where even being overtly racist, tossing off all pretense of equality uh, now is the winning path to nomination. That's that's what he's demonstrated. Oi, uh, yeah. Um, so um, given that uh, I think from uh, from almost every uh, political philosophical political philosophical perspective, dangerous, uh, disconcerting trend in um, the the way in which um, the Republican Party um, or the path that the Republican Party has has hit upon for for electoral success, at least at the national level. Um, do you think that there are any any lessons that we should take out of this? Is there any way to, or what advice might you have for um, uh, for people committed to democracy, even on you know across the the spectrum of political allegiances? For those of us who are committed to democracy, liberal or conservative, um, are there any is there any advice that you might have of how we might uh, repair things or start to turn things around or at least to do better at democracy? Well, that's a great question. Uh, so I think it's also important to recognize the economic dimension of this problem. There's a question of why now uh, do we see this populist moment happening? And it is important to understand that Trump is not only about racism and Islamophobia and so forth. He also is carrying a very powerful economic message to white working class people who have, in fact, been left behind by economic developments since the 1970s. They haven't seen economic growth. They've seen the shutdown of factories. And... without actually much policy response from the federal government for decades, 
these people whose communities are devastated, uh, especially in the rural areas, the rural areas are losing population. They've lost their businesses. Main Street is shuttered. Uh, you see rising rates of drug addiction and despair in these areas, uh, even declining life expectancy right. among working class uh, uh, whites. This is shocking. There's no other demographic that has suffered a decline in lifespan. That is absolutely shocking. So and am, I, am I right? To, I'm sorry. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that 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 the the, the um, that white men are um, even uh, more severely impacted uh, by the so the data yeah yeah the data actually suggests that the that the declining life expectancy is concentrated among white women but of course that's devastating to their to their husbands right. <laughs> when their wives die so right. it it affects of course all, whole communities and families and so forth. And so there is a genuine economic grievance here, but Trump is telling them a very simple and false story. He's saying, blame it on immigrants, blame it on trade with China and Mexico. Now, if you actually look at the data, this is ridiculous. Immigrants, in fact, are uh, re- increase the demand for uh, native labor, people born here, because, well, you need teachers who can teach the students in the classrooms, right? right. So you have demand for, and those teachers, of course, need to be fluent in English. Right. So it's mostly people born here. So in fact, all the studies show that immigration is good for America. It's needed to support various industries like agriculture, uh, it does not depress the wages of uh, the people who are already here. In fact, it contributes overall to economic growth. It's a huge plus. Um, so Trump, though, has made it easy for people to blame frightening, scary others for their economic distress when, in fact, the problems arise from a fundamental shift in structural uh, uh, features of the economy, jobs have been automated away by robots. Uh, this is nothing to do with trade. <laughs> right. Automation has killed far more jobs uh, than trade has, and trade has actually grown jobs in other sectors of the economy. Uh, but it's still the case that because the federal government and the states never really came up with an effective way to address the genuine economic distress of the white working class, they are now ripe for a very divisive, hostile, and frankly, racist message. It's easy to blame foreign others, right? (laughs) And then simple solutions like kicking out the immigrants, which in fact will undermine jobs in the United States and wreck the economy. Without immigrant labor, Social Security and Medicare, which are hugely popular in the Republican base, uh, will be not be able to be financed as well, because it's if you look at the growth of the labor force, none of it's coming from people born here. It's all coming from immigrants. Right. Well, with an aging population, how are you going to keep Social Security and Medicare afloat? You need to grow the 
size of the labor force that is, uh, you know, of working age. Right. Uh, so that they can pay those taxes to support retirees who are disproportionately white. Right. So is there, um, I don't know. So what can we do? (laughs) So I think what needs to be done, and this is really the fundamental answer to all populist movements, uh, is there has to be a vigorous policy response from the other side that is, number one, listening very closely to white working class people in rural and exurban areas, going out there listening, just showing that basic respect, which hasn't been happening. Democrats basically abandoned those areas. They no longer represent those areas. They thought, okay, we could just win elections by turning out our base. That turned out not to be true. So Democrats have to go out, they have to listen, they have to show respect, and they have to come up with concrete policies to restore employment, to restore communities in these areas, and to explain, for instance, how healthcare reform really is in their interests. One of the defects of Obamacare was that it had very generous subsidies for people in the bottom two quintiles, but the people exactly in the middle, the subsidies uh, uh, fell off way too rapidly for those people. And consequently, now they're paying shockingly high premiums with huge deductibles. They feel like this is a burden on them. They're not really winning out. To bring them on board, I think you just have to increase the subsidies and then they'll really love Obamacare. That, of course, costs money, but the wall costs money, too. Right. Liz, you've been um, uh, you've been very generous with your time. And uh, I want to thank you uh, for, for talking to me today on the Why We Argue podcast. And thank you, listener, for uh, tuning in. The Why We Argue podcast is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. Thanks for listening and follow the project on Twitter and Facebook at Public Humility. That's one word. Thank you. Bye for now.